0: This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, it is February 23rd. We have drawing capital on. Both Sean and Sagar are joining us again, Uh, kickoff this year in February. Um, I should note that all opinions expressed by Sean Vanderwall and Sagar Joshi in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are solely their own opinions. This podcast is not an offer nor recommendation to buy or sell securities of any investment fund nor a solicitation of offers to buy any such securities. An investment in any strategy, including strategies described herein, involves a degree of risk and clients are drawing capital, may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Uh, to start us off, I'd like to talk about the tech sell-off, but uh, I'll, I'll do, first I'll start a may a couple on my part. If you guys remember uh, the podcast last week, uh, I kind of bought into the Kremlin line about Ukraine and Russia. <laughs> um, since then, there's been a lot of activity. And um, yeah, it's looking like it, it may be turned into um, kind of a full-scale frontal. In kind of light of that, I'd like to talk about this year's tech sell-off. Generally, it's been more pronounced in the broader market or industrials when we're comparing it to NASDAQ and the S&P, the uh, Dow Jones, et cetera. I really think you have dueling factors of increased interest rates, as well as classic COVID stocks, such as DocuSign, DoorDash, and Zoom taking a hit. And um, alternatively, some of these steep sell-offs will might become a value play. So I guess my first question to start off, gentlemen, is what should tech investors be looking at this year and what segments of the sector seem to have the most upside potential?
1: Thanks for the great multi-dimension question. And there's a lot to unpack there. At a high level, I share the opinion that enduring and high quality business performance, financials and fundamental value creation can overcome short term contraction in price multiples. Often, the price of admission for high return and high growth investing is price fluctuation. And as an interesting stat that I uh, recently came across the other day, less than 5% of companies in the S&P 500 index have five-year revenue kagers or compounded annual growth rates that exceed 25%. Now from an interest rates perspective, low interest rates implicitly support innovation investing in two methods. First, low interest rates encourage more investors to pursue high growth opportunities and pay premium prices for premium assets in order to achieve their portfolio return targets. High growth opportunities often come from disruptive technologies that create exponential growth, growth endurance, and positive network effects. And the second component of how low interest rates implicitly support innovation investing is that low interest rates enable a lower cost of capital, which allows highly intensive businesses to get funded. Now, coming to what we're seeing here today is that now that inflation and interest rates have both risen and with the monetary policy cycle increasingly moving towards a more tighter policy stance with less liquidity from QE, this has contributed to repricings of several stocks and has contributed to the lackluster year-to-date performance for broad stock market indices like the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. And to tackle the volatility perspective uh, in your question as well, there, in my view, there are three common ma- methods of managing volatility in investing, either reduce it, accept it, or use it as an opportunity. Higher volatility strategies have higher error bands, implying both larger potential upside and downside range band possibilities. As investors' time horizons decrease or in some cases collapse to something very short term, then price volatility increases, particularly in long term investments and innovation stocks that can take a while uh, for them to mature and achieve positive cash flows. And so as volatility increases, the dispersion in an asset's returns can increase, so portfolios with higher volatility have a wider range of outcomes, implying potentially higher high points but lower, por- lower low points. And for a concluding thought on volatility, perhaps a counterintuitive investment principle is using volatility as a buying opportunity for concentrating investments in high-quality assets because when there is max fear, uncertainty, and doubt, then market prices for quality assets are often trading at depressed or distressed prices, enabling smart investors to buy premium quality assets at discounted prices.
2: And Sagar, as you just talked about, you're really thinking about value investing or quality investing, if we think thinking about just factor-based, so really trying to find an underpriced security to its intrinsic value. And, and we have seen over the pandemic, a lot of growth in some of these tech companies. Um, So if we think about privacy, security, um, AI technology, 5G, um, what trends or of of these companies do you think will be most exciting this year? And in what ways might some of them be problematic?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And for general technological trends, Drawing Capital primarily invests in high growth software, e-commerce, and healthcare technology companies with an emphasis on innovative technologies, sustainable differentiation with growth, quality distribution channels, and enduring business models. And additionally, we actively and and really utilize rigorous bottom-up fundamental analysis in what is considered the innovation economy with a technical overlay combined with using insights from the startup ecosystem, research, and intermarket analysis for public and private investments. And so in innovation investing, prices fluctuate in the short term. And my opinion is that long term value creation is certainly worth the wait, although with some of these prices, sometimes it can be particularly jarring in the short term. Now, since innovation investing and investing in emerging technologies have uncertainty around their possible validity and future impact, innovation investing can be a roller coaster ride because changes in sentiment can increase or decrease the level of collective perceived uncertainty in financial markets. Nonetheless, and despite the recent market volatility, I believe that the key takeaway is that several technological trends, some of which I've mentioned here, continue to be very fascinating, both from an intellectual curiosity perspective and also from an investment perspective. There's one trend um, additionally, I I guess, is the metaverse,
0: Um, you know, and and Facebook's changed its name to meta for one. But we've seen a lot of other companies engage in some serious M&A around this, Uh, Microsoft, is actively uh, pursued Activision uh, and you know, that's not unique to the United States. I'd say Morgan Stanley recently published that the total metaverse market could be worth around 8 trillion. And, and we're looking at developments in companies like Alibaba, Tencent, NetEase and um, ByteDance. So some, a lot of Chinese firms as well. Can you explain the metaverse to uh, the layman and, and from like a geopolitical standpoint, do you think of this as kind of a new space race?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And as a nice, uh, like side fun fact, Sean and I actually recently presented a webinar on the metaverse and actually plan on publishing a blog post in March about our viewpoints and observations on the metaverse. So really timely and and very relevant question indeed that we've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about Um, at a very high level. The metaverse is certainly a trending topic among consumers, gamers, content creators, investors, the developer ecosystem and so much more. Notably, the metaverse is where digital identities live in a digital space with the bold vision of building a new, more immersive version of the internet. Unbundling the metaverse from a buzzword to a series of current practical applications as well as future potential developments, the key takeaway, in my opinion, is that we believe the metaverse is just in its early beginnings and will become an opportunity that will be measured in the trillions of dollars. Notably... This is not just our opinion, but also an opinion shared by some high-profile technology CEOs and financial industry analysts. Notably, I believe that connecting and intersecting the developer ecosystem, the creator economy, along with digital property rights and consumers will be essential for the success of the metaverse. Key components of building more immersive experiences are multi-sensory interactions and embodied experiences with deeper feelings of real-time presence. Across the seven layers of the metaverse, there are several methods of how companies can participate in and create value to others and for themselves in the metaverse. And so while some public commentators express views on the metaverse as a far-off destination for our population, many of these experiences are translating into tangible value today. We can see examples of this in markets such as e-commerce, gaming, content creation, productivity tools social media, and the creator economy. Ranging from virtual gaming on Roblox for individuals, or the use of simulation and digital industrial twinning via NVIDIA's Omniverse technology, there are both consumer and enterprise applications currently happening today in the metaverse. Clearly the vastness of the metaverse opportunity implies multiple winners in the ecosystem, as opposed to a space race style or country-based competitive landscape that you alluded to in your question. Additionally, there are several publicly traded gaming companies and a few ETFs specifically related to gaming, virtual worlds and the metaverse. So all in all, a really exciting space. Obviously, um, a lot of development and a lot of interest has uh, increased with the uh, changing of Facebook's name to meta platforms and their developments in reality labs. But the reality, too, is that it's not just Facebook uh, in this or meta platforms rather, but a whole ecosystem of both public and private companies that are actively exploring and participating in the metaverse.
2: Can't say I'm the biggest fan of the meta brand change for uh, for Facebook. Seemed like they were trying to uh, get out of the news for for various headlines. <laughs> One other trend that seems, we, we talked about the metaverse, but cryptocurrency. So that's been uh, a trend, I would say, over the last couple of years. Seems like Mark Zuckerberg had a plan to build ones, but that plan has been collapsing. The Diem Association had a digital currency. They're now looking to sell their assets and return their capital to their investors. In your opinion, does crypto does this crypto project have any lessons for other tech companies? Because there is a a number of companies who are looking to enter the space and create their their own digital coins. Um, Is this a good lesson for them?
3: Yeah, and I think this is a really important question for tech companies and individuals looking to enter the crypto space by means of creating their own coin here. And just so listeners are aware, uh, the DM Association assets are being sold to Silvergate Capital, which is a publicly traded holding company. And then through its subsidiary, Silvergate Bank offers innovative banking solutions such as digital currency solutions. So uh, to answer your question, though, I, I think DM Network's CEO Uh, Stuart Levy addressed the key concern very well in discussing the deal with Silvergate, which the gist was that the Diem Association worked very closely with regulators, sought out feedback from several different regulatory bodies all over the world, and despite making substantial progress, a quote from Stuart Levy here is, it nevertheless became clear from our dialogue with federal regulators that the project could not move ahead. So as new entrants are thinking about entering this market, they need to recognize not only the regulatory headwind for certain new technologies, but also the cost of capital and time it'll take to accomplish that goal, uh, which may, in some circumstances as it did here, render the project unviable. So there will be a few emerging organizations that will have the resources and brand affiliation that DM did, but not many. and they were un- unable to reach their desired outcome. And this bench of resources being, uh, that DiEM had, both being financial capital and the strategic resources that can actually gain access to influential members of regulatory bodies that can help drive uh, positive outcomes here. I think another um, important and final point to make is one that Sagar discussed in, in a recent webinar of ours as well, which is that uh, the success of Bitcoin, which really is, uses the the primary example of a successful cryptocurrency here, would likely not have been as great were it not for Satoshi's anonymity. And this really enforces the importance of that type of role in architecture in order for something to be truly decentralized and to persist. The inability for governments or and regulatory bodies to point to a specific real leader or organization can help Bitcoin persevere through... Uh, what will likely be a heightened restriction uh, environment. So if I were thinking about getting involved, the questions I'd be asking for myself and my team are, do we create this under our own label? Do we instead utilize the technology uh, on top of an existing protocol and utilize something like Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Solana, as as others have done? Who can we identify as a potential partner that can either help uh, with scale or strategic resources to move the project along successfully? And if we're raising capital, are we raising enough uh, to weather a likely storm, considering this could take much longer than expected and be much more costly than expected? And who are the strategic investors that have capital and influence uh, that we might be able to get connected with?
2: And that does make a lot of sense, Sean, the point that you just made, because you would be linking your brand to this digital coin. And some people may be held for for liability for that. So that that is a great point. I just did just want to ask one follow up question, as you just mentioned, a lot more of the regulation around that some aspects of the cryptocurrency may be because there is this deregulation with with more governments looking to maybe even launch their own crypto coin or even be add more regulation do you think that will impact the popularity of the growth with cryptocurrencies that we've seen
3: i think it depends on the use case so a lot of the governments you know that are in talks of launching some stable coin or something like that so if, if you're looking for something that has the same use case that maybe the government is trying to pursue there's an immediate conflict there, right? And if if the consensus within that government or regulatory body is likely to favor, obviously, their own currency. So coming in in direct head-on with the competition and, and also trying to get approval from people who are making the rules and trying to push their own stable coin, for example, forward uh, seems to be counterproductive.
0: I'd kind of like to uh, kind of change gears to some robotics. It's you know, been a common trend to talk about this in terms of creative destruction for a number of years, but with COVID in particular, um, you've seen some developments, right? The Okado Group recently created the 600 series of robots. Half their components are actually 3D printed. Now, despite this, you have Amazon's increased investment in robots designed for warehouse, but at the same token, they've recently hired 150,000 extra workers in the US and they're offering sign-on bonuses of three grand. So th- I think that really brings up the question, is that why after years of the discussion about how automation will take over factories and warehouses, do we see at the same time increased human labor and, and pay raises in these spaces?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. I, there are a lot of really, really interesting things happening in robotics, as you mentioned, not just warehouses, but you know, in, in the medical field and, and things of that nature as well. But I think many of the headlines here get overinflated in terms of impact to human jobs. When we look at the use of robots top down, about 70% of the use of robots can be accounted for by four manufacturing industries, Uh, automakers, which is really the bulk, it's more than half of that total amount, followed by electronics, plastics and chemicals, and then metals. Um, According to a study done by MIT, one robot replaces about six and a half jobs on average, meaning U.S. manufacturers would need to purchase and install nearly two million units to replace the existing workforce in its entirety. According to uh, the same research cited in that MIT study, the current pace is about 35,000 robotic system installations per year. Uh, So this, in addition to altering supply chain operations, training staff, Hiring experts to implement and maintain further automation, uh, it's going to take a lot of time. Um, and, And more importantly, using your example of Amazon, the use of robots in the warehouse and factory setting has largely been to augment the productivity and safety of the people that are working there. And in your question, you highlighted a key insight, which Amazon has confirmed in other commentary as well, which is that the hiring and growth of their employee base is more aggressive than the growth in robotic machine count. To uh, give a more concrete example of how these robots are actually being used, I think it might be also helpful. But an example here would be a robot, uh, an Amazon robot nicknamed Ernie, is designed to take boxy product containers off shelves at different heights, and then use a robotic arm to deliver the totes to warehouse employees at a standard height. So the goal is to reduce the amount uh, of reaching up, bending down that workers have to do, or increase output with with less effort through this specialization uh, in automation of these robots. Uh, One other example, a robot called BERT is being tested as one of Amazon's first autonomous mobile robots, or AMRs as they call it. It's designed to find its way safely through the company's facilities on its own. And in the future, a worker could summon a robot like Bert to carry heavy loads from one end of the warehouse to another, obviously dramatically reducing human exhaustion and physical output. So I think really the key takeaway here is that the use of robots allows people to do more with less and not necessarily replace them altogether, um, at least for the foreseeable future here.
1: Sounds
2: like we'll have to learn how to coexist like uh, in iRobot. And I do love their uh, their names, Bert and uh, and Ernie going around here. Um, They they, very creative. Sounds like a couple of dogs are running around the Amazon warehouse. Uh, Let's talk 5G, Sean. So we did see that they weren't in the United States. Air airlines and airports wanted not to have 5G because it was going to mess with some of the radars and the systems within the airplanes. We've seen Google's old CEO and a Harvard professor come out and say that the U.S. government has left our country vastly behind, China and the 5G technology raise. Do you agree with this? And, and if so, how should the federal government be responding?
3: Yeah, so I would agree with the sentiment. from Eric Schmidt, also in some research that he had cited, basically used that airport example and just said, look, this is completely debunked. But globally, in in this uh, race for technology adoption here, China's putting huge amounts of resources into building out 5G capability on the order of 30 to 60 times more over the next few years, uh, more than the US, unless we change course. Internet speed. As well as computing speed, have many downstream effects. So in Eric Schmidt and uh, Graham Allison's piece uh, in reference here with the Wall Street Journal op-ed, they touch on two key points that I think are worth mentioning. The first is that the U.S. led the charge originally with 4G, which had fantastic benefits economically and technologically for the adoption and value that grew from handheld devices and enabled us to better interact with the world around us. Examples of this are Uh, like real-time map services, GPS software like Google or Apple Maps. Uh, It also accelerated usage in applications like Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, uh, which are obviously much more difficult to consume in high volume or at at lower internet speeds. And and now this really traveled around with people as they went around on their phones much more efficiently, as opposed to being constrained uh, to a desktop or laptop computer. So higher speeds via, via mobile devices directly translated into billions of dollars of value creation for shareholders and companies. Secondly, I think that this is more more important than this former point, is America's position and necessary role as effective capital allocators here. As I made reference to, China plans to spend $150 billion building out 5G infrastructure over the next few years. This This is immediate term happening now in contrast the u.s is earmarked 1.5 billion dollars and additionally we just passed an infrastructure spending bill last year that was over a trillion dollars with a t as a part of that bill 66 billion dollars has been set aside for things like amtrak uh, or 66 billion dollars were set aside for amtrak specifically in order to bring about high speed high-speed rails in some areas and additionally for safety improvements uh, just as a side example China has identified the most promising areas in tech and is absolutely doubling down on these strategic technologies and the resources needed to manufacture them. Another and an important related uh, technology here is, is chips. This is a huge area. China has has been gathering materials needed throughout Africa uh, with the hopeful goal of owning the vast majority of these inputs uh, needed to actually manufacture the chips. And today. Those are unbelievably essential, from their presence in cell phones for browsing the internet and, and downloading content, to hardware needed in the private sector for operations to run, uh, to things that are of vital importance, like defense for the country. And uh, another feature of technology is that products, like chips, are, are constantly improving. So our need to replace existing hardware as things get better and faster is only going to increase. So you can see how China owning the resources and key inputs in that market can provide a huge competitive advantage for them. So to go back and answer your original question directly, yeah, I certainly agree with Eric Schmidt and uh, Graham Allison here. I think that America should be responding by operating with urgency around this technological progress, both by means of providing necessary funds to private enterprises for things like R&D, just as an example, and then also offering benefits like tax incentives to those that are focused on making us more competitive in this area. We have incredible talent in this country, and the government can best help, in my opinion, by incentivizing that talent to focus on areas that make us globally competitive, especially in tech.
0: So you you bring up uh, you know, the investment in chips and, and kind of the bipartisan infrastructure bill as well. Uh I think to kind of close this out, one good segue would be a recent piece of legislation that that passed Senate, I think pretty much a year ago. And I now think it's with the House, they're drawing up some changes, is the CHIP act. Uh as you met like in the nineteen ninety, the US had thirty seven percent of semiconductor manufacturing capacity, right? Now we're about twelve percent. Uh, So I guess in terms of legislation, what are your thoughts on the CHIPS for America Act and and what are the chances of maybe it passing and, you know, getting some rid of some policy paralysis in the house right now?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think this ties very well together with the last question, which just briefly mentioned. Semiconductors are of essential importance as they power all of these necessary devices and machines that we use today. Uh, if, if China, again, is the dominant force in that market, they have significant leverage in order for uh, the U.S. to retain uh, and remain competitive, we really need to do better on that front. So It's great that there are bills like this moving down the line. Just to, to provide some additional context for listeners, the CHIP Act was actually passed by the House on February 4th this year, just earlier this month, uh, and includes about $52 billion in grants and subsidies and $45 billion to strengthen up supply chains for high-tech products. It does, of course, include some finer points, which are now up to the leaders of the House and Senate to reach an agreement on. Some of these details include $8 billion for a fund that helps developing countries adjust to climate change, $3 billion for facilities to make the U.S. less reliant on Chinese solar components, uh, $4 billion to help communities with significantly higher unemployment than national average, and $10.5 billion for states to stockpile drugs and medical equipment. So, to answer your question directly, as someone that's far from a political science expert, my take on on the CHIP Act is it's a great initiative. Uh, It satisfies what I'd consider to be a a small but step in the right direction effort to incentivize the right behavior in the private sector. And given that the Senate ruling was 68 to 32 in favor, uh, it was 222 to 210 in the House. I would expect this does move up to President Biden to sign. There just needs to be some final resolution on the smaller details, since there were some discrepancies between what the Senate and House had passed. You'll almost always, uh, again, you know, strictly my opinion here, but you'll almost always have uh, some fringe inclusions like these finer details in the bill in order f- for certain parties to to kind of sign off there based on whatever their own priorities are. But I just hope that we can reach, you know, quickly resolve those points to start to move forward, since I. You know, again, going back to Eric Schmidt's comments, I don't, I don't think we have um, much time to necessarily waste in this area.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks again for your time, gentlemen. Uh, it was very informative. Uh, especially found the the robotics um, segment uh, very profound. I had never really read about the, the need for two million robots to functionally end American manufacturing. So that was, I guess, one of the more optimistic takes. We might have a little while to figure that out. Thanks again uh, to our viewers and listeners and likes and subscribes. We'll be back next week and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Wellfest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by Wellfest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.